Well, the title of my message is The Big Cover-Up. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So much was lost in the Garden of Eden. It's absolutely astounding. Adam and Eve gave it all up. They abandoned paradise. They had to be pushed outside because of their rebellion and sin. An intruder convinced them that God did not have the right to tell them what they could do and what they could not do. It was their life and their choice, and their consequences. That's the way it is today, neighbor. The intruder comes, the tempter tells you, it's your life. God doesn't have a right to take things away from you. But neighbor, you don't have any rights. God made you. He breathed into you the breath of life. He made you everything that you are. And he has given you life itself. And the moment that he decides to take it away from you, he can do that. And so you need to surrender yourself to him and to his laws. Reluctantly, though, they left the Garden of Eden. This paradise, they had to be driven out. They didn't leave willingly. They were not given an eviction notice and suddenly just said, well, we'll have to move out. No, they were driven out like an unwelcome guest. And God said angels at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with flaming swords to guard the entrance. They were turned out into a world of hardships. Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 tells us about it. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he, was, he dro drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now then, he must learn to deal with something he's never known before. Hunger, pain, sickness, hardship, sweat, and toil of the face. The progression of sin was obvious there in the garden. It's outlined for us in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. For all that are in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now the woman said, it is pleasant to the eyes. That was the lust of the eyes spoken of here in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. She coveted. She did not own this fruit. It was God's. It was in his garden. And the Lord just let them be caretakers. It did not appear to be bad. It, in fact, it was very tempting. It looked to be good and wholesome. Sin is always glamorized. Our action of disobeying God's command, we're told, but it's good for you. And everything's made for love. And, and surely, if something is so much fun, it could not be wrong. Tobacco, alcohol, beer, the lottery, gambling, sex, it's glamorized. The television commercials, the newspaper and magazine commercials make it look like this is the healthy thing to do. Never mind the cancer. Never mind the broken homes, the dissipation. Never mind the pain and the heartache 
and the moral depravity that it brings in their life. They don't think about that end of it. And so you see some handsome person drinking a beer or smoking a cigarette, doing something wrong, getting involved with, with the lottery. And, and then we're told that it was good for food. This is the lust of the flesh that we have highlighted for us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Remember now, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. It was good to look at, beautiful to the eyes. Then secondly, it was good for food. The cravings of this natural body dictate to us. And we allow our hunger pains. And we allow the flesh to tell us what's good and what's bad. Thirdly, we notice that it was a tree desired to make one wise. And that was the third sin mentioned in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, along with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. The third one was the pride of life. It appealed to the ego, to the intellect to that person who wanted to swell up with pride and say, well, I have this higher learning, and I'm from the intellectual side of life. Well, the progression was obvious there in the book of Genesis. She saw, she took, she ate, and then she gave it to her husband. That's the way it always happens. People are tempted. They see something. They take it. They participate in it. And then they want to share their misery. They don't want to experience misery alone. And so they get sin. The sin motivates them to get someone else involved. Sin spreads to every element of society. Young people argue. It is socially acceptable. Everybody else is doing it. And after all, we're living in a new enlightened age. I want to ask you something about the temptations to the fleshly sins and carnal nature of this world. The thing that you young man would say, well, this is all right because everybody else is doing it. Would it be all right for your mother? Would it be all right for your sister? Would you want your mother committing those kind of sins? I want to ask you another question. The compromise situation that you're leading yourself into, does that apply to your future companion? Would you want your wife to commit such sins that you're thinking of right now? The Bible tells us that we are a sinful people. In the book of Ro Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, we're taught that everybody has sinned. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Mister, you have a sin nature. It is in you. You don't have to learn how to sin. You don't have to teach children how to commit sins and how to do wrong. They will do it automatically. You teach them to do right. You teach them thou shalt not because the sinful nature is pulling them, tugging them, driving them, and tempting them into a life of debauchery and shame. And so that's why we have Sunday school. And that's why we have uh, ethics classes and morals classes because we know that we have to be taught to do right. Our sinful nature, our depraved nature will take us down the wrong road. Grace alone can lift you. You can't lift yourself by your own bootstraps, but grace, God's grace, can lift you out of the quagmire and the pit of sin and place your feet on the solid rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a song, an old song, I believe it's a Methodist hymn, Come Thou Fount, all to grace, how great a debtor, Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. 
prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's it, neighbor. Your heart may be prone to wander and sin. And go out and commit those wild things. But God will heed that request when you say, God, take my heart and seal it for eternity. Protect me from these worldly temptations and seal my heart for the home above. The big cover-up is described for us in verse 7. In Genesis 3, verse 7. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Man tries to hide his sin. He never wants to admit that he did wrong. Confession comes very difficulty, with great difficulty. It is hard. People try to hide their sinfulness. In the eighth verse of the third chapter of Genesis, we read, And Adam and Eve, his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Here they are, hiding behind the bushes, hiding in the trees, trying to find play hide-and-seek with God. It'll never work, neighbor. God sees where you are. David tried to and attempted to hide his sin that he had committed with Bathsheba by committing murder and getting her husband to come home from the battlefront. But this guise was soon found out, and even though he got him drunk, he couldn't get him to go home to his wife. And David was found out. And the prophet of God pointed to David and put his finger in, on David's nose and said, Thou art the man. Neighbor, God has your number. He knows what you've done. He knows the secret sins you've committed. He knows how you've hidden them and buried them in your past and put them out of your mind. But they're on the book. They're on God's book. And they're going to be revealed one day. And your conscience will smite you in the middle of the night. And they'll torment you and torture you until you have confessed your sins to God and made it right with God and gotten forgiveness and the blood of Jesus Christ has washed those sins away. You can't hide your sin. It's man's nature to cover up. It's the big cover up. It's man trying to sow the fig leaves of, of humanism, secular humanism and new age thought, trying to cover up their sins by saying there's a little bit of good in all of us. We're all gods and all we need to do is find that godlike characteristic, let it develop itself. It's a big lie. I'll tell you there's a lot of devil inside of most of us. And we need to get the devil out. And the only way that can happen is if we are born again. Jesus said you must be born again. And Jesus Christ will come in. And the Bible says Christ in you, the hope of glory. When the devil goes out, Christ comes in. Or I'll put it the other way around. When Christ comes in, the devil goes out. The devil's not going to leave until Christ comes in. When Jesus comes in, brother, Satan will have to exit stage right. He's not welcome. He can't stay there. There are a lot of people who teach Christian demon possession. I don't believe a word of it. I believe where Christ lives, the devil finds it very uncomfortable and very uninviting. He doesn't even like it where Christ is. Man's fig leaf cover-up is never enough. You can't justify your sins. No argument, no sense of reason will ever justify sins. Adam's excuse was this, well, the woman gave it to me. And then Eve's excuse was this, well, the serpent told me to do it. Well, the serpent didn't have an excuse because he's a liar and the father of lies. And, and they said, we did eat. Yes, you have to confess that. You can't hide it from God. God called Adam and he said, Adam, where art thou? 
God has come calling through this television program, through the radio program, through a church service, through a Sunday school class, through a gospel tract, through a personal witness, through mama's prayers. God comes calling. And he says, where art thou, son? Wayward lad, wayward girl, mom, dad, steeped in sin. Where are you today? Hidden among the stuff, sewing fig leaves together, trying to provide the big cover-up. It's time that you admit, well, I'm lost, and I need to come to Jesus. Let me tell you how to find forgiveness. It's found for us in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now the Bible tells us to confess our sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He only forgives those that are confessed. Only when we repent, and repentance means that you turn away from the sinful nature. It means godless sorrow. You're sorry for your sins, and you turn away from it. You confess those sins. How long does it take God to forgive you? A lifetime? Forever? Eternally? No, friends, a split second. No longer than it'll take it to get it out of your mouth and from your heart. God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. That second, that instant, God will blot it out, and you will be transformed from a sinner into a saint of God. You will be born again, washed in the blood of Jesus, made a new person in Christ Jesus. The thief on the cross did not have to go through some long, penitent prayer. He didn't have to go on probation. Jesus said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And I want you to know, if you'll get forgiveness right now, if you die in the next five minutes, you'll go to heaven. If you get Jesus in your heart, if you get saved, you'll go to heaven when you die. Well, restoration is always a wonderful thing. And for a Christian who has sinned and fallen away, restoration is wonderful and it's a meaningful experience. The Bible teaches us to restore these kind of people, and we're to do that. But let me tell you one thing. It all starts with confession of sin. There is no restoration for the person who tries to hide their sin. The Bible teaches us that if you seek to cover your sin, it is a folly. It's foolish for you to do that. Well, I thank you for being part of this program. I urge you to find Jesus this day and accept him as your Lord and Savior. God bless you is my prayer.